Well, good morning. It is great to be back with you all. I want to say thank you to Paul, and I'm so happy he is healthy. Um, after last week, hearing that he's going to start blaming some health issues on not being able to preach again, I am praying for that man so much right now. Uh, but I just want to say thank you, Paul, for being willing to fill in and uh, just being able to hear the wisdom that God has given him and his heart for God is encouraging to me. Um, last week, Heather and I and some friends were able to go to Arizona. We were on vacation, and we were on our way back. And let me just tell you, I think Arizona might be my favorite destination right now because it's weird. Um, and, and what I mean by weird is not like Austin, Texas weird, where their slogan is like, keep it weird, Austin. But weird as in this is where we were at on Thursday, snow-covered mountains. They had like 300 inches of snow. And then you drive northwest an hour from there, and you're at the Grand Canyon. And then you drive an hour south of those mountains, and you're in another canyon, this beautiful canyon. And then you drive an hour south of that, and you're in the desert of Phoenix, Arizona. And so, like, you're literally three hours from anywhere that is, like, a different climate. Like, we hit 60s one day. We hit, it was beautiful on the mountain. Just everywhere we went, it was beautiful. And I got one last photo, Jeff, if you'll cycle to the one. This was two years ago of Sam Eddington starting his modeling career. And we thought, you know what we got to do? We have to recreate that. Sam was on his honeymoon. He wasn't able to do it, so we found a better-looking <laughs> model. And so, love that kid. Um, but it, it, it was just really weird because, like, we, we went hiking, we went snowboarding, we went to a baseball game, we went to the Grand Canyon. We were all over the place. And then we come home, and we're driving home on Sunday, leaving this beautiful weather. And Tuesday in Arizona, they had blizzards and flooding where we were at. And we had sunny skies and beautiful days, and they had blizzards and stormy days. And then we get back to Kansas, and I hated it because it was 40 degrees, and I was freezing my tail off. And see, it's gone. And uh, sorry, terrible joke. But um, we get back, and 40 degrees, Wednesday hits 75. And I'm like, man, I love Kansas weather. <laughs> and then I remember, wait, we're in Kansas now. And the next day, they decided to be like, actually, it's going to be cold again, and I am freezing even more. And that's the thing about weather. Like, they say that about Kansas weather specifically. Oh, a beautiful day. Give it five minutes, it'll be raining. Oh, give it a week, and it'll be snowing. Give it whatever, and you'll be in a drought. Like, it changes all the time. The seasons change. But not only do seasons change, what, what it's, it's kind of a Christian lingo thing to say of I'm going through this season in my life. Because as seasons change, life experiences different quote-unquote seasons or different highs and lows. And that's what Solomon's going to be talking to us about this morning as we are going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And remember, Solomon is running through this experiment called life. And he is using under the sun theology in which he is saying, what is the meaning of everything? What is the purpose behind everything that I am doing? Why am I here? And he's looking for it in the world, under the sun, in the world. 
And so he's like, you know what? I'm a king. I'm going to check for it in my power. And so he had servants and he had maid servants and he had like a thousand wives combined. And he was like, I am the most powerful man in the world. Maybe that's where I'm going to find purpose. And he was like, it's vanity. And so he was like, maybe I can find it in the things that I can build. Because not only am I all powerful or the most powerful person in the world, I'm also the richest right now. And so he's like, maybe what we can do is I'll, I'll buy stuff and I'll build stuff and I will just accumulate wealth and things. And he's like, nah, that didn't do it for me. Even that is vanity. And so he was like, I'll, I'll party it up. I'll, I'll drink and I'll keep my wits about me all the time. But, you know, I see other people drinking and they seem pretty happy. And he's like, that left me just as empty. And so he's going through this experiment in life, and he comes to the conclusion in verse or chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, all is vanity. Everything is vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that is repeated throughout what we see here in his journal. As he is constantly seeking the way to find happiness in this life, and he's writing it down for us to learn from years and years and years later. And he's saying, under the sun, it's empty. You're going to find it to be empty. And so he's, he's going to take us now into chapter 3 where he's going to tell us life has its seasons. And we're going to have highs and we're going to have lows. And then he's going to tell us, but God has a purpose and he works through those seasons. And then ultimately we're going to end up seeing God gives us a hope beyond whatever season we're in. Because Solomon's kind of hitting this despair. He's kind of hitting this point where it's like everything I do is meaningless. So Solomon started out his life, a real quick recap of who Solomon is. He is the son of David. And he ascends to the throne after David passes away. And so he is like wealthy. And there's this moment where he has this dream. And God asks him, Solomon, I will give you anything you want. What do you want? And Solomon says, give me wisdom. And so God says, you could have asked for wealth, you could have asked for health, you could have asked for anything, but because you asked for wisdom, I will give it to you, and I'll give you all that other stuff. And so Jesus even says about Solomon, there has been no one as wise as Solomon up until that point, that he was the wisest man outside of Jesus to have ever lived. But there's this downfall that Solomon went through where God has warned the people of Israel as they're about to enter into the promised land. He says, expel everybody from out there and do not marry their people. Only marry among the people of Israel. And you know how we humans are. We think we know better than God. And so it's like, oh, but God, uh, she seems to be a pretty nice lady. So I'll just go ahead and marry her. She doesn't align with who you are, but you know, she, she'd make a good wife and a good mom. So I'll just marry her. I'll step outside of your will. And we see that the people of Israel started to do that so much so that when you're reading in Second Kings, uh, or First Kings, I'm sorry, about Solomon, it says that he started marrying women from other nations. And then it says at one point, he turned his heart against God because of his wives, not just wife, thousand wives 700 wives 300 concubines and they turned his heart against God so he started out just fully pursuing God and then he allowed himself to be pulled away from God by his wives and that's where he starts writing Ecclesiastes 
as he is seeking what is the purpose because kind of I've, I've drifted away from God. And so what is the purpose of all of this? And he's in despair. And so we're going to uh, open up in a word of prayer and then we'll start reading what Solomon has to say for us in Ecclesiastes chapter three. So if you'll join me, Father God, we just thank you that even through uh, Solomon kind of going away from you and seeking all these things outside of you, you can still take this and use it for us to learn from. And so God, I just pray that this morning as we see the words of Solomon, which are what you are pinning for us, God, may we learn from them and God, may we grow from them. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray this, amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter three, starting in verse one, he says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And so what we see here is Solomon is taking us on the roller coaster of life. Because he's saying there is a time to love, but also there's a time to hate. There's a time to rejoice but there's a time to weep. There's a time to dance, there's a time to mourn. And so he's saying life goes on this roller coaster and every single one of us experiences the roller coaster called life. Some of us hit really big highs. You know, you win the lottery and you're like, woohoo, I'm a millionaire. Like you're, you're Pikes Peak, you're Mount Everest, you're in the solar system, you just won it all. And then you lose it all. And so like, man, you're like, Grand Canyon even deeper, Mariana's Trench. You're, you're hitting a peak and then you're hitting a low and all of us go through that. Some of us peak higher, some of us drop lower. But we all go through this thing that we call life where we have these highs and we have these lows. But not only is Solomon telling us that we all go through these seasons, he's also saying there's a monotony in it. I mean, honestly, as I was reading that, I almost got monotonied through it. I almost got bored because it's like a time, a time, a time, a time. And Solomon is saying life just goes through. Like we all experience life and it just kind of is the same repetition as he's already told us in Ecclesiastes. What has already been done before will happen again. There is nothing new under the sun. And so we all totally understand these highs and lows of life. We all understand if you went to college, you can remember that moment where you graduate college and you're like, I have arrived, I am an adult. And then you're like, now I have to find a job and nobody wants to hire me right now. I was on a mountaintop, I graduated college just to realize I'm unemployed and moving back in with my parents. Hits a little close to home there. Um, you know, or maybe you're like, well, no, I found the job right away. I graduate college, I got the job, and then you realized I work with other people. And there are deadlines, and there are restrictions, and I have this commitment that I have to wake up early and go to all the time. 
and they don't pay me enough. And then all of a sudden they call you in and they're like, Mr. John Doe, you have been doing really well this year. We're going to give you a raise. And you're like, yes, just to find out government takes half. And you drop back down low. Then, you know, maybe it's not a job. Maybe it's like, ooh, if I could only meet that person that would fulfill all the longings inside of me. And then you meet them and you go through the honeymoon phase and you're like, they are just so wonderful. Everything about them is amazing. Other than Heather, everybody else you realize they got baggage other than Heather. <laughs> but, you know, you, you meet them and then you realize, wait a minute, now I have to keep them. Like it was one thing for them to like me at first, but then they realized I don't have manners. And now they're going to threaten to leave me. Or I, at least in my mind they are. Not now she's married. She's stuck with me. <laughs> then you start the family and you're like, you know what? Hey, it went from two of us to now there's three of us. And then you realize, man, yesterday I had to change a diaper. That was rough. It was like they don't tell you about this. And so then you realize not only do you have to change the dirty diapers, you have to provide for the family so that raise you just got doesn't go near as far. Every high is going to come with some kind of low. And so Solomon is telling us this over and over, and he says in Ecclesiastes 1.9, there is nothing new under the sun. What you experience, I've experienced to some extent. Because as people, we, we get into this mindset of nobody knows what I'm going through. There is nobody who has experienced the difficulties that I'm going through. And what Solomon is telling us is there are a lot of people who know what we are going through. To think that we are the only one that has ever hit a valley is a lie. Because I'll, I'll honestly say this, I think it's a lie from Satan. Because what Satan wants to do is in, especially for believers, in our downs, he wants us to isolate. He wants us to think, you know what, nobody would know what I'm going through. And so I'm just going to keep it all to myself and I'm going to stay reserved and I'm not going to open up to anybody. And instead, what God has done is given us his body, the fellowship of believers, to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.1. To carry one another. He even says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed are you whenever God comforts you in your afflictions so that you can comfort other people in their afflictions. That what Satan wants to do is isolate. Proverbs tells us that the fool isolates. And so what we get in the mindset is thinking, oh, I'm the only one that goes through this. And Solomon is saying, everybody goes through it. Everybody goes through this, even health, wealth, and prosperity people. Those who think, well, if you just have enough faith, then you won't go through anything. Solomon's telling us right here, it doesn't matter who you are. You're going to experience difficulties. Jesus actually tells us in John 16, that in this world, because of Jesus, you're going to experience difficulties. There's not a whole lot of health, wealth, prosperity in that. He says you're going to be handed over to the high priest, and they're actually going to inflict harm upon your body. And he says, but don't worry about what to say when that time comes, because I will give you the Holy Spirit. He says, I will provide for you. But difficult times are coming. And so Solomon is telling us that. But here's the great thing that we, we can 
remind ourselves of because we're all going to go through the highs and the lows. We're all going to have these amazing moments in our life followed by heartbreaking moments. And we have a high priest who knows what we're going through. That we have Jesus, who is not some God sitting distantly far away, who is like, man, my life was sunshine and roses, and I never experienced anything difficult. But instead, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us, we have a high priest who, he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. I mean, you want to talk about loss? He lost Lazarus, and we're told in the shortest verse of the Bible, he wept because he saw the death and the heartache of his friend. You want to talk about betrayal? Judas, one of his closest, 11, closest 12, was one of the ones that handed him over to be crucified. You want to talk about pain? Look at the cross. You want to talk about, well, poverty? He said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus knew what we were going through. Jesus knew what we struggle with, and he can relate to us. These are the realities of a fallen nature that we live in. Because it's almost like uh, Romans chapter 8 tells us that even creation is begging for God to come back. It says that creation groans with the pains of childbirth, waiting for that day where God comes back and makes all things new. Because we live in a fallen world. And so even going through life's motions, Solomon is telling us just to keep like this thing called life under the sun is vanity. It's meaningless. And so the question becomes, all right, what's the purpose of it all? If it's all vanity, if life is pointless, then why did God give us life? What is the purpose? And again, under the sun, Solomon is using this under the sun theology. Apart from God, it's meaningless. And, and now we're going to hit kind of on a, on a deeper topic here. Not only are the highs meaningless, but the, I, I'd say the thing that differentiates believers from non-believers is how we handle difficulty. How we handle those struggles. Because again, anybody can be rejoicing when they're on the mountaintops. But it takes a very special peace from God that surpasses all understanding to be able to find joy in the darkest moments of our lives. In heartache. In pain. And things that we're left asking God, what just happened? But we're able to say, but you're God and I'm not. That we have that outlook. Because Solomon, he's miserable. And he's kind of in the despairs of life right now. So much so that in verse 17 of chapter 2, he hates life itself. He's so despaired that he goes on to say, even life itself I hate because what is done under the sun was grievous for me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And so Solomon is in this despair, but for a moment, he reminds himself, oh yeah, there is this higher calling. Verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, what gain has a worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot 
find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. And so again, we're going to be going through these difficulties of life as a result of the fall, but those difficulties can point us to God. Notice he said that in verse 11. He said that God has made everything beautiful in his time. He has put eternity in the man, into man's heart. He is pointing us to God. He is surrounding us with things that point us to God. We've seen that Solomon understands there is this God-shaped hole in the heart of every man, as it's been said. And it's like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. It's like Solomon's like, all right, I'm going to take power. Will that fit in this hole? No, it doesn't. I'm going to take the plush life. Will that fit in? No, it doesn't. I'm going to take all of this, all, everything I can, and I'm going to try and shove it in there, but it doesn't fit. Because there's only one thing that will fill that hole in the hearts of man, and that is God. It's like being stranded at sea. And here you are, you're stranded at sea, you're surrounded by water. And yet, the one thing you need is water. But you can't drink what's around you. Because if you drink the water, that's how so many people end up dying at sea, is they just get so thirsty that they end up drinking the salt water of the ocean, and it does absolutely nothing for them. And it leads them to death. And so here we are as Americans, and we are surrounded by things that promise you happiness. Ah, play the lottery and you'll win and you'll be so happy. Ah, buy that new house, that new vehicle, get a new spouse, whatever it is, and you'll be happy. We are surrounded by so many things that promise us happiness, but when we actually drink of them, it leads to destruction of our life. It leads to just more emptiness. It's not filling that hole in our life. I've gone over to Haiti. And let me tell you, the average income in Haiti is $1 a day. We would throw a fit if that was our average hourly rate in America. And yet there are people over there that experience far more joy than us here who are filled with an abundance of junk because what they see is we have Jesus. We have God. Now, there are also people over there who are very miserable because they also don't have God. But I have seen among the believers in Haiti a joy that just resonates because they are not distracted with the garbage that America likes to throw at us. And I love our garbage, but it's garbage. And it can be used for a purpose. We can redeem those things and use them to glorify God. But when we take those things and think, this is what will make me happy. This is what I'm going to fill my life with. It's going to lead to emptiness. And so if what Solomon is saying is if this life is all there is, if all we have is an under-the-sun theology of it's this life I have from birth to death and the dash between those dates and there's nothing else, he says it's vanity. He says this in verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better 
for them then to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to them. You know why this is God's gift to them? Because if this is all there is in life, you better enjoy it. If this is the only heaven you have to look forward to, then you better live it up for yourself to the best of your ability. But Solomon's already said, I tried living it up for myself. I bought and I built and I married and I did it all and it left me empty. And again, the worst thing we can do is read this journal of Solomon through this experiment of life and think, yeah, but Solomon, I can do better. You don't really know. That's the worst thing we can do. The best thing we can do is we can learn from it. And we can realize that God has a purpose for everything. He says in Colossians that whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord, not for men. He says in 1 Corinthians that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. That God can take the meaninglessness of this life and work through it. Not just in the highs but in the lows also. Because really, if, if, if this life is all there is, again, going back to that under the sun theology, if this life is all there is, what hope do you have? Are you placing it in leaders? Like these billionaires, like Bill Gates or the president or the government or whoever it is? Is that who you're placing your hope in? Oh, they will give me a better life. Solomon actually hits on that. In verse 16, he goes on to say, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice where these people should be doing good, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens, again, remember, Solomon is in despair right now. He's kind of questioning everything. And so he's saying, what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. One dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over beast. It's all vanity. All go to one place, all from the dust to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And so Solomon, he's in this despair of under the sun thinking because he's like, what difference is there between man and beast if it's all just life to death and that's it? I mean, honestly, why under the sun thinking, why would I expect people who say murder an unborn child, even murder a child after they're born, why would I expect anything different from them if they don't see us any different than a beast outside of God's redemption? But God can take that under the sun theology. And, and I'm not saying that we just be quiet because what's the point? I'm saying we speak up. And we speak truth and we keep fighting how we can fight. But in reality, why am I amazed? Because I expect them to have some form of morality because God has put that in their hearts. But at the same time, if we're all just beasts, what's the difference? It's all vanity, but that's not true. Solomon has been deluded by his wives. But what we see is that we are working for a greater purpose so that, again, even in our darkest moments, 
God can use those. Because really, what's the point of suffering if there's nothing beyond this life? If there really is nothing beyond my final breath, and I am so miserable, and I am suffering so badly, what's the point of continuing? But God gives hope. Because there is a hope beyond our suffering, and there is a life beyond our suffering. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. God has made everything beautiful. God, in his redemptive work, can take that suffering, that moment that you think, I cannot go on any longer, and he can redeem it. And he says, I will make that beautiful in its time. And I will use it for my glory. We got a couple updates recently about missions work. And as, as you probably heard in the news on February 6th, there was a earthquake over in Turkey. And it displaced 50,000 people where just homes were crumbled, devastated them all. And it says that there was a team of men, they were working to remove the debris of a building that had collapsed days earlier. A woman came to the men shifting the rubble and told them they must be careful because her children were inside. The men responded, no one could have survived, but the woman insisted, and the men worked more carefully. In the midst of the building, they found her children alive. When the workmen told them that their mother had told them to work carefully, the children said their mother died five years earlier, and that a man in white had kept them safe. His name was Jesus. Turkey's not a Christian nation. Many stories are being reported by those rescued about this man in white whose name is Jesus. Turkish people are coming to faith through the direct intervention of Jesus Christ. In the midst of this continued suffering, Iranian Christians are providing for the physical needs of hurting people. Even more importantly, they are sharing the hope of the gospel. The Turkish people are asking, where are our Islamic leaders? The imams have left, yet these Christians are helping us. That God took a devastating disaster like that earthquake, and we are seeing people come to know Christ through it. Actually, the, the imams, they sent out this video, and it's been viewed thousands of times, and they're warning their communities about Christian missionaries who are serving soup, cleaning up the environment every day, and they're showing respect as they provide food to the hungry and helping those in need with tenderness and love. You better look out for them. They said, be careful of them, the imams warned, and keep your distance. They might infect you with that Jesus juice. But what they, sorry, what, what they meant for evil, God has used for good. As a result of the viral video, there has been overwhelming increase in people coming to the church, looking for hope, asking about the gospel, and wondering why these Christian missionaries are serving Muslims in this way. And as community members seek out frontline workers for help and hope, they're asking for Bibles. That God is taking these disasters, that God is taking these places where people are persecuting Christians, and the Christians are capitalizing on that. Actually, God's capitalizing on it through the Christians. So even in the midst of suffering, we can see God is still good. God will take that suffering and use it for his glory. He makes everything beautiful in its time. 
That's the Old Testament version of Romans 8.28, where we're told that we know God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according, according to his purpose. And so Solomon, he answered his own struggle here because he's like, what's the point of it all? What's the point of the highs and the lows? Why do we go through all of this? And he said in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. You know, God is victorious. What God sets in motion, nothing can stop. We see that 2,000 years ago, where Satan thought, you just lost God. I just killed your son. I had all the people turn against him, and those who were following him said, crucify him. What now? And yet three days later, we see Jesus came out triumphant. He conquered the grave. And not only did he conquer the grave, Satan was like, God, I got all your people in bondage right now. And he's like, no, you don't. For freedom, Christ has come to set us free. That we now have freedom from sin. We now have freedom from the bondage of slavery and the bondage of the law. We have freedom to live for Christ. We have direct access to the throne of God. We have nobody condemning us. Romans 8 says, so who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus isn't gonna. He died and was raised from the dead so that now he's actually interceding for you. Everything that looked like a defeat turned out to be a victory. And God can do it in our lives too. That God makes everything beautiful in its time. There's still gonna be lows, there's still gonna be highs, but what God does is he works it all for the glory of him. And it will work out for the good of those who love him. Romans chapter 8 verse 18, we can hold this as a truth. God says through Paul, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That yeah, we're, we're going to have difficulties, we're going to suffer, but they don't compare to the eternal glory that we have waiting for us. That what we get to do is we can look at the world and they can be like, hey, repent or we're going to end your life. And you're like, my life is only about to begin. The death is actually the beginning. What you think might be winning is actually giving me the victory. These present sufferings are not even worth comparing that someday we are going to be on the other side of eternity and we're going to be looking back at the heartache and the struggle and we're going to see how God takes that and makes everything beautiful in its time and we're going to see the eternal glory and we're going to be like, yep, I'd go through that again. And I'm not trying to make light of anything that we're going through. What I'm trying to do is magnify the eternal glory that God will give us when we enter into eternity. That to look back and to be like, you know what, you pulled my fingernails off, you put me through horrendous things, you tortured me, and I ended up giving my life as a martyr for Christ. I would do that a thousand times over when I see what it brought me. And what I see God was able to do through that. What if we had that mindset upon ourselves when we go through these difficulties instead of being Eeyores? You know Eeyore? Oh boy, it's going to rain today. Woe is me. But instead we're like, man, God, huh, this sucks, but I trust you. 
And I believe that you are going to work through it because your word promises me you make everything beautiful in its time. Seeing God is in control. That leads us to fear him. I'm going to wrap up. We're going long. I got two weeks stuff piled up inside of me. He says in verse 14 again, I perceive that what God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. This word fear, it has really kind of two different meanings. It means to fear, like, oh my gosh, there's a lion outside. I'm petrified. I'm scared. Or it means to stand in awe. And really, the choice is up to you. You kind of get to decide which way are you going to view God. Because there is going to come a day, Revelation tells us this, where the, the sea and the abyss and Hades will give up their dead and they will stand before God on the judgment throne. And for every single person who did not believe in Jesus, they're going to fear God. They're going to be looking face to face to the creator of the world, and they're going to realize, I rejected you. And Jesus tells us, he will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. And there's going to be a literal fear inside of them. And they should fear God. But for those of us who see who God is and we see the power of God and we see the goodness of God, it is, there's still that kind of like, man, he's all powerful. Like he's not my homeboy. He is my creator and my Lord and my King and he is all powerful, but I respect him and I stand in awe of that. And I, I just want to live for him. Uh, an analogy that I could think of is skydiving. I love skydiving. I've gone twice. I plan on going again. But you're really on like a split view of skydiving here. It's like skydiving. I don't want to fall like and trust this piece of fabric to open and slow down my fall. And so there's people who are like freaked out of skydiving. Like I went with one and he was like white knuckled all the time. And he was like, uh, uh, can, can we go back down in the plane? And they're like, nope, and pushed him out. Um, and then <laughs> kind of literally he was attached to somebody though. And then you got like me who was like, uh, did you pack my shoe? Yeah. How many jumps have you done? Through 2,000. I trust you. You're going to be attached to me? Yeah. You're going to pull the shoe when we need to? Yeah. Sweet. Let's go. Like I was excited about it. You know what the difference there is? Who are you trusting? The people who are freaking out are like, man, I, I don't know if I can trust God. I, I don't know if he's really going to come through. I don't know if God actually is going to make everything beautiful in its time. I don't know how God is going to take this terrible moment and work it out for the good. So I'm going to freak out through it all. And then you have these other people who have this crazy peace about them. And they're like, you know what? I've seen God work thousands of times before. And I know that God can work through this. I, I trust God. Not only has he jumped a thousand, man, he created the world. He took the grave and he conquered it. He took the death of his son and he raised him from the dead. And he proved he will make everything beautiful in its time. So we have that choice. Do we trust God or not? Because there's still the fact of I'm free falling right now. I really hope this parachute opens. And it always does when you are a child of God. When you trust in him, he always opens the chute. Maybe not in your timing. He might let you get really close to that ground. And you're like, anytime now, God. And he's like, watch. Even if 
it doesn't look like he's catching us on this side of eternity. Even if whatever it is, is like, man, that diagnosis didn't end up the way I wanted it to. That relationship didn't end up the way I wanted it to. I don't know. It always turns out for the good because Jesus Christ has conquered the grave. And for those who love God, we have an eternal glory waiting for us that is not even comparable to these light and momentary afflictions which feel so, so heavy. So the question is, who do you trust? Even when it looks like karma's not happening, which is not even a Christian thing, but you know karma where it's like what goes around comes around. These leaders who are going to be wicked, it seems like they should be getting theirs, but they just get more power. Solomon tells us God will judge the wicked because they will realize the true fear of God. They will be standing before him and their time is coming. But here's the thing. It doesn't have to. That's, that's kind of the offense of the gospel. You know, we're told that, th I'm ending, by the way. Uh, this is the offense of the gospel. We're told in, I think it's uh, First or Second Corinthians, that the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. And, and I almost think it's more of an offense to the self-righteous who have given their faith to Christ. It, it's almost more of an offense. Um, so I was raised in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school. Uh, I, I gave my life to Christ at an early age. And it's easy when you have that history to start thinking I'm a pretty good person. And then you hear about the gospel and how those who just totally squandered their life, because you might be asking, I've already lived the vanity life. I've already ruined it all. I've already messed it all up. The gospel redeems all things. I'm, I'm just going to read this to you as we close here. This is the offense of the gospel. Jeffrey Dahmer, you've probably heard his name. He's one of the most famous serial killers in the history of at least America. Over the course of 13 years, he murdered 17 men and boys, combined 17 and then he did things we're not even going to dare mention with their corpses. In 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer finally got caught and he was thrown in prison. He was convicted for 16 life sentences, 491 years he was going to be in jail. Mary Teresa of Bojiju, close enough, she was from India. She devoted her entire life to helping the needy live among, living among the poor herself, and she became a saint in the Catholic Church. You probably know her as Mother Teresa. Way easier to say than Bijuju. Jeffrey Dahmer, while he was in prison, was given some literature over creation, and he, he believed it. And after reading it, he stopped believing in evolution, and he actually started believing in God. This man who did things we won't talk about. He believed in God. He professed a faith in Christ. He was baptized. And in one interview, Dahmer said, if a person doesn't think there is a God to be accountable to, what's the point of modifying your behavior? Kind of like if this is all there is, he kind of said what Solomon's been telling us. It's all vanity. Like, why am I in prison for murdering these people if this life is all there is. If they are but beasts, if there is no God, why? But then he goes on to say, I've since come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God, the Father, Holy, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God, and I have accepted him 
as my Lord and Savior. On November 28, 1994, Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered in prison while cleaning the bathroom of the gym in prison. But he had his life attempted to be killed before that. Somebody took a razor, took it to his throat, and it barely cut his neck. And he said, I believe that God kept me alive so that I could keep doing his work. Because he was sharing the gospel with people in prison. And it's like, man, this guy who is like a terrible person, now thrown in prison, and he has given his life to Christ and is serving a purpose in prison. Whereas Mother Teresa, she's been noted for saying, oh, I hope I am converted. I don't mean what you think. I hope we are converting hearts. Not even God Almighty can convert a person unless that person wants it. What we are all trying to do by our work, by serving people, is to come closer to God. If in coming face-to-face with God, we accept him in our lives, then we are converting. Might not have much of a problem with that, but this is where I have a big problem. We become a better Hindu, a better Muslim, a better Catholic, a better whatever we are, and then by being better, we become closer and closer to Him. If we accept Him fully in our lives, then that is conversion. What approach would I use? For me, it would be a Catholic one. For you, it may be Hindu, for someone else, Buddhist, according to one's conscience. What God is in your mind, you must accept. I have a big problem with that because she is almost saying that whatever you think God to be, that's who God is. She's mistaken. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Not through Allah, not through Hindu, not through Buddha, not through anybody else. Jesus is the only name by which you can be saved. This is the point I'm trying to make through all of this, and this is where it's offensive, kind of. Everything Mother Teresa did outside of Christ is meaningless. Living among the poor, trying to help all these people, all of that is utterly meaningless. And everything Jeffrey Dahmer did inside prison after he gave his life to Christ had a purpose. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. Jeffrey Dahmer could say that. Paul is the one that said that. Andy Peterman could say that. Every single person on this earth says Jesus came to save sinners. To close, Solomon ran this experiment in life. He tried to find the purpose and meaning of it all and everything without God. And he found it was vanity. But when you surrender your life to Christ, Ecclesiastes 3.11 He makes everything beautiful in its time, even your broken past. He makes beautiful. And you can trust him. And you can know that what Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know that you have a hope that goes beyond anything. Life is not mundane. Life is not monotonous when you are living for Christ. But outside of Christ, what's the point of it all? But he makes everything beautiful in his time. Are you going to trust him with everything you have? Even in the lows and the valleys, will you still trust him? Father God, you are so good. And God, I thank you that you give us a hope that goes beyond our circumstances, beyond the deepest moments of our lives. And God, there's many people 
who are suffering and struggling in, in ways that we don't know about. And God, I just pray that you give them that peace, that you give them that, that assurance of who you are and that they can just stand before you and even say, God, we don't know how this is gonna work out, but we trust you. And so therefore we're gonna live for you in it all. And God, I pray that if there be anybody in this room who is not living for you, they're still in the, the vanity of life. God, let them see that it is all vanity and therefore give their life over to you. Give them that courage to take that step of faith. If it be coming forward and talking to me as we sing this song, God, help them do that. If it be finding somebody they trust to pray with and just seek out how to live for you, God, give them the courage to do that so that they can see no matter what's been done in their past, you make everything beautiful in its time. God, help us trust you in all this. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we're going to sing a song of invitation. Number 489 in your